All right, so we are in our series journey, and what we're doing is we're doing overviews of entire books of the Bible in the New Testament. You could do a whole sermon on a verse, and we're doing a whole book, but it's kind of valuable to be able to get this comprehensive look at an entire uh, gospel or entire letter, just to know what was the what was the theme, what was the author trying to communicate, what was the big picture. Not what's one isolated verse, but what was the whole message. I mean, you've had that happen where you've had a conversation, like a full-on, hour-long conversation with somebody, and they took away one piece of that conversation, and you're like, eh, they took it out of context, or that's not quite what I meant. That happens to the Bible all the time. God has to be so annoyed with like, oh, I'm glad you like that verse, but that's not what it means if you would read the whole thing. We handed out these little journals. How many of you bring your journals to church with you? Oh, man, that is super depressing, you guys. <laughs> so deflated. I was so excited. Now I deflated. Uh, full confession, I didn't bring mine either. This is Caleb, so... <laughs> <laughs> I panicked, asked Caleb, hey, did you bring your journal? And he, he had it. Anyway, the uh, journal, I don't know how many of you noticed this, but on March 30th, yes, March 30th, there was a typo. Did anybody notice that? Raise your hand if you noticed that. All right. So that means that there's six people caught up on the reading. The rest of you, I just caught you. You were behind. That was a test. I put that typo in there on purpose because me, do you think I would have a typo? There's no way. It's not possible. No, I have typos constantly. I make Kareem edit everything I do. It was a test. If you didn't call me or message me and say, hey, what's going on? Then that means I know you're not doing the reading and God doesn't love you as much. He loves the rest of you guys. So that are all caught up. So that's just the way it is. That's what the Bible says. We are in the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. So we were in 1 Corinthians last week. Stands to reason we'd be in 2 Corinthians this week. Uh, 2 Corinthians has some of the most um, thoughtful, uh, eloquent Bible verses in Scripture. They are true, and they are profoundly true in a way that resonates, where you read that Scripture and you're just like, there is a deep uh, truth, mystery, idea, hopeful concept here that's just so good. And I've noticed that in the age of social media, when you put these verses on a nice background, it makes them feel even more true. So I want to share three quick verses with you, and I put them in a nice background and a nice font so that you could enjoy them and understand how true they are. This is 2 Corinthians 3.18, where it writes, and we all, this is Paul writing, and we all with unveiled face, reference to Moses in the Old Testament, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. We are being transformed. That's good news, right? Because you knew who you were, and you knew you know who you are becoming into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's just a profound, eloquent, thoughtful verse. How about chapter 4, verse 17? This is a good one. For whatever problems you have, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That's a beautiful idea to know that, man, I've gone through some hard things in life that have nothing to do with my choices. They're no fault of mine, but God is preparing something beautiful for me in the future. That's a wonderful idea, and it's even more true on this nice background with a cool font, right? Right? Or how about this one? 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is a good one. You know this verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. How beautiful is that? That's such a good idea. It's so good to know, like, oh, yeah, I did not like my earlier version pre-baptism self. That was bad news. I made some choices I didn't like. There were parts of me that I'm glad God has redeemed and taken care of that I'm still working on to become new. But I have to remind myself daily that I'm new. Good verses, right? These are good verses. These are all verses that you would be proud to post on your Instagram page. Despite that, I think 2 Corinthians as a letter is underrated. It's underrated. It's not the go-to letter for a lot of people. It's not the go-to passages. It's not the go-to part of the Bible. We talked about how 1 Corinthians as a church was a disaster. It was such a mess, and you're reading this letter, and it's like, whoa, scandal after scandal on top of scandal, and you're just like, this church is wild and crazy and impossible. And then you get to 2 Corinthians, and there's a lot less scandal in the text, and you're just like, okay, it's okay. But it, it just feels like, how do you, how, what's the second act from that? It's kind of like, if hypothetically, one famous person were to walk up to another famous person on national TV and slap them, you'd be like, how do you come back from that? What's the next thing? What happens next? Like, there may be some of you, I'm very curious, does anybody know what happened right after that incident last week? I didn't even watch the Oscars and I read all about it this week. Does anybody know who won an Oscar right after that moment? No, no, no. Who was the very next Oscar given to? Will Smith won one later. So you don't know because it was such a big moment. Whatever happens next kind of doesn't matter. And I think 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are kind of like that. 1 Corinthians is like a slap upside the face to these Christians. And 2 Corinthians, you're still thinking about all that happened in 1 Corinthians. So I think it's underrated. And that's too bad because 2 Corinthians is crucial. It's so good. 1 Corinthians is like that fun friend that likes to party but wears you out. 2 Corinthians is like that friend that will drive you to the airport at 4 a.m. on a Monday. It's sturdy and solid and stable and gives us so much depth and reality about the world and about truth and about our relationship with God. So let's get into this. This will be a kind of a combo. There will be some teaching, preaching, but we'll all mix it up and we'll see how this goes. How many of you in your family uh, have a, like within the family, you have a default job? That's just, uh, you always have to do it. So for example, um, in the family, how many of you dads, like, do you have a default job? You're just the one that does it. Nobody else does this job in your house. It, what is that job? What, who, what do you do? Alex, what do you do? <laughs> All right. <laughs> I got to say, I think that's the first time I've heard the word poop in church on a Sunday morning, but... <laughs> There you go, new uh, breaking barriers. So that's Alex's job. Nobody else does that. Nobody else is willing to do that. Interesting, we'll play into my story here in a second. How about kids? What jobs do you have? What do you have to do? Teenagers, what do you have to do? Dishes, you have to do dishes. Oh, good for you. That's really, that's really awesome. I'm the dish guy at our house. I do most of the dishes, unless I forget and then Kareem does them. But I'm, I'm generally the dish guy. Uh, what, do, what do moms do at home? What do moms do? What's their default job? Right, Taylor, correct. That's the correct answer. Moms do everything else and anything that nobody else wants to do. Or when Alex forgets to pick up the dog stuff, I can't say poop in a sermon. It's just weird. When Alex forgets, then I bet you Kim's probably the default person. No, she just leaves it. You don't have to worry about it till spring in Minnesota anyway, so it's fine. 
One family that I knew that were in our previous church we were at, they got a puppy. Puppy was not housebroken. They did not have a default dog mess cleaner upper. Um, nobody had been assigned that job. Nobody wanted to clean up. So the parents came up with what they thought was a genius rule. So here's how we're going to uh, deal with this puppy problem that we've got. If you see a problem, you clean a problem. So if you see something, you clean something. That was their rule. So anytime the first person to notice the dog mess in the house was the one that was responsible for cleaning the problem. According to the law of unintended consequences, what do you think happened to the kids in that household? They went blind. They all went blind. <laughs> See no, yeah, see no evil. They walked around. No, what they did, similar, what they did is they walked around looking at the ceiling as they walked from room to room. Of course, they're running into tables and chairs and walls because they would not look down. Now, think about this. Because it was too much work to fix a problem, it was easier to ignore a problem, which meant that they lived with the problem. Because it was so much work to fix the problem that they ended up ignoring the problem and wound up living with the problem. Does that sound like anything in your life? It's so much work to fix the problem. It's easier just to ignore the problem. But you know what happens is you live with the problem. And 2 Corinthians is all about this, that we would rather ignore something than fix it, that we would rather turn a blind eye than actually get in and clean up the mess. That's an accurate description of life. I mean, we have, we have sin in our lives that we have been ignoring for decades, kind of hoping it goes away. Does it go away? No, it doesn't. We have relationships that have fallen apart or fallen by the wayside or grown cold that we've just kind of let go. And we're every once in a while thinking, man, I remember the good old days. I wish I was still connected with him. I wish it was like it was 20 years ago, but we're not doing anything to fix the problem. And we ignore it and we end up living with it. Second Corinthians is all about difficult, messy, ugly, awkward, tense relationships where it would be a million times easier to ignore than to fix and just live with. But there's something about Paul, about who he is, about what he does, about how he wades into this mess and does not give up on these people. I imagine a lot of you in the room go to a specific friendship that maybe is no good or, or maybe some people have a marriage that has just fallen into bitterness and they've become roommates and there's acrimony. Uh, maybe there's estranged family members that don't get invited to Thanksgiving anymore. Maybe it's just broken friendships. Maybe it's burnt bridges. Maybe it's settling for surface level connection with fellow Christians because it's just too much time and effort to, to put into developing a real relationship. But Second Corinthians this is why it's so valuable. It is about grabbing a mop, grabbing a broom, putting on the rubber gloves, and getting into that situation and fixing it. That's what this letter is about, and that's why it's so valuable. So let's dig in. Let's take a look at it. Um, I, like, I like a good, harmless conspiracy theory. You know what I mean? I like, you know, not a crazy one that's going to get anybody arrested. I, you know, Bigfoot, that's not, that doesn't cause anybody any problems. It's just kind of fun. Maybe Bigfoot exists. Maybe he doesn't. Aliens, Area 51, those, they're fun. They're just fun. Probably not true, but maybe. You never know. It's just fun, right? It's just, it's just an enjoyable conspiracy theory. But here's the classic, you know, this is Charlie Day from a TV show. Here's the classic wall with all the red lines and the papers and connecting all the dots, right? Here's the crazy conspiracy theory. Well, we're going to connect 
connect some dots this morning that are going to take a little bit of work for us to pull together. We're going to do the crazy conspiracy theory, but it's actually true. And here's the mystery. Last week, we read about 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians, remember I used the phrase, <laughs> it was a dumpster fire of a church. I didn't make that one up. That comes from a professor of, a th of theology. He's like, this church was insane. Remember what were some of the craziest things that were happening in that church? There was a guy who was... His father's wife, and you're like, ooh, gross. Yes. What in the world? Remember what was happening during communion? They were getting drunk during communion. You know they weren't using the little tiny glasses because that was happening. I mean, it was crazy. Those are just the two craziest things among many crazy things. But what happened between when Paul sent this letter and he said, hey, you guys are a mess. Here's the 10 things you need to clean up. Here's what you got to fix. It's a disaster. You got to take care of it. What happens between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians? All right. So this is the teaching part. Hang with me. I think you're going to find it valuable. Here we go. Uh, Paul hits send on 1 Corinthians, right? He wraps his letter up, he licks the envelope, he puts the stamp on it, which they didn't have the post office, but he gives it to a friend and he pays for this friend to travel to another city, a distant city from him. He was probably in Ephesus, which would have made a letter really expensive. It was expensive to send a letter. You didn't have the Pony Express, there weren't carrier pigeons, you had to send somebody, pay for their trip, pay for their lodging, pay for the hotel, pay for their food, and they would drop off a letter and then come back. That's what's happening. So he, he sends it, and then it's this first century cliffhanger. What happens next? He's written all these really hard things to this church that's going through crisis, and what happens next? He can't, he doesn't get an immediate response. It's not like when you text somebody and you see those three dots, and you're like, okay, something's coming, and you're just staring at your phone waiting for the response. It's not like that. It's months and months of waiting, of trying to figure out what, what happens. So radio silence. So then Paul pays for another guy to go check on them. He sends Timothy to check in on them. So Timothy, you've heard of him. He's kind of a, a name in churches. He sends him. And this is all pieced together by very smart people from the, the text of First and Second Corinthians. Timothy goes and checks on them, and he comes back, and he's like, Paul, things are still terrible. It is still really bad. So Paul says, all right, I got to go visit him. I got to confront him face to face. So Paul travels to Corinth, and he comes confronts them, and it goes just like you think it would go badly. It does not go well. It is ugly, and we can, you can read all about that in uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 23, 2, 1, 12, 14, 13, 1. You got that right? Good. Paul leaves Corinth, and he's like, oh, man, this is a disaster. It's all getting worse. And then he decides he's going to write another letter. We don't have this letter. Remember I told you last week when we read 1 Corinthians, it's actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians. It's actually probably 4 Corinthians. You're getting too much detail here than you want. But he writes a letter we don't have, and he describes it as a harsh letter that causes him much anguish and much sorrow and tears. And he says, I'm sorry I made you sad, but I'm kind of glad I made you sad because you guys were a disaster, and you needed to get some things fixed. And that is in 2 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4. Then he sends Titus to check in, like, how are they doing? How did things go? And Titus comes back, and Titus has got a little glimmer of hope. He's like, Paul, hey, things are, things are looking better, looking up. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. The problem, things are starting to move in the right direction. The problem is there's some new folks that have moved in that are calling themselves apostles. Paul sarcastically calls them super apostles. And they are coming in, and they are totally throwing Paul under the bus. Because Paul's had a hard life. 
He's had a rough go of things. And so these guys are coming in, and they're talking to this church, and they're saying, hey, this is just me. I mean, I don't want to talk out of turn, but isn't it weird that if, if Paul is, is really sent by God, why do you think his life is so hard? I mean, it's just me, but shouldn't somebody that's on God's side have an easier go of it? Because Paul's had a tough life. And then they say something else in the letter, and you can see this by Paul's response. They say, uh, hey, guys, have you ever seen Paul's Bible degree? Have you ever seen his resume? Have you ever seen his uh, credentials? Have you ever asked him to see where he got his theological education? Because I don't know, he's saying some stuff that's pretty weird. Do you remember Paul's response to that? He's like, I started the church there. What are you talking about? I'm the one that taught you about Jesus. He says, you are our letter of recommendation. It is written on your hearts through the Holy Spirit. What do I need a letter of recommendation for for you guys? That's crazy. And do you remember what he says about how life is hard? And that must mean God's not in his side. He, he says, on the contrary, life being hard shows that I am on God's side. Because none of the success I have comes from me, clearly, because my life's been awful. It comes from God. And he talks about that in chapter 12, that God's power is made perfect in Paul's weakness. It's really beautiful. All right. And then at the end of all that, Paul writes 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. So if you're reading this letter, there are essentially three sections to it. It all kind of weaves and winds its way on each other, but there are three sections to 2 Corinthians, and it's this. Number one is essentially, hey, we can fix this. We can get back together. There's hope for our relationship. We can work it out, right? Makes me think of that Beatles song. We can fix this. And that's the first seven chapters. And that's where you get great verses like, hey, all the promises of God find their yes in him, referring to Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful verse. But what he's saying is like, hey, I meant to come to you. I wanted to come to you. I told you I was going to come to you. I didn't come to you. Really sorry. I'm not back and forth. I'm not wishy-washy. I'm not waffling because I'm like Jesus. I say yes, and I mean yes. Circumstances prevented me from coming to you. Uh, chapter 5, verse 17. This is where this verse is. If anyone is in new Christ, the new creation has come. And there's a really cool way to understand that I think that we tend to get wrong. Not bad, but just we, we tend to miss the point. The second part of 2 Corinthians is, hey, guys, don't forget about the big fundraiser. It's the whole thing about a fundraiser. Anytime you've heard anybody talk about giving or generosity, financial giving or generosity at church, they've referenced 2 Corinthians because it's a really thoughtful, elegant way of saying, hey, it's important that you take care of other people's needs. And that's two chapters in, in 2 Corinthians. Uh, so this is one of them. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though Jesus was rich, he was rich. He had, he was, he was with God, part of God. Yet for your sake, he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. And so he's saying, be like Jesus is what he's saying. Uh, or have you ever heard the phrase, God loves a cheerful giver? You ever heard that? That's where this comes from. God loves a cheerful giver. He loves people who are generous and excited about it. And then the third part is, P.S., those super apostles are super bad news. Those super apostles are bad news, and he gives this kind of expose about their problems and what they need to watch out for. And that's where you get verses that you're familiar with, like chapter 10, verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought. 
you've probably heard of that verse where you're thinking, I've got to take captive my thoughts, but Paul's actually saying, I take captive other people's bad ideas because the truth will expose bad ideas. And those super apostles are spreading bad ideas. I'm going to take those captive. I'm going to fight those. And then the whole section about my grace is sufficient, my power made perfect in weakness. One of my favorite passages, 12.9, is in here as well. All right, so he's explaining essentially why his humble life was evidence that God was with him. How many of you, you, you've heard of Warren Buffett, right? You've heard of Warren Buffett? There's probably a real age line here below which people have not. Um, Anybody know what Warren Buffett is famous for? All right, yeah, he's he's famous for being rich, right? Uh, Does anybody know where Warren Buffett lives? Yeah, Omaha was where all rich people go to live, right? The beautiful plains of Nebraska, that's where they go. Um, does any, has anybody ever heard of where Warren Buffett lives in Omaha? His house is worth about $600,000, and that's because it's probably gone up since he was a kid. He has a very modest house. His house, he's the fifth richest man in the world. His house is worth less than many of the houses they're building around the church building. Somebody could look at Warren Buffett and say, I mean, he should prove how wealthy he is by building a nicer, bigger house. Then he could show people how wealthy he is. Well, maybe he's wealthy because he hasn't blown all his money on a bigger house, right? Paul's saying that exact thing. You're thinking I need to have an easy life that would show God's favor on me? Listen, I want you to know God's power, and God's power is displayed through my hard circumstances. And it's just a totally different way of looking at the world. Great. It's wonderful. So let's weave all these ideas together and let's try to understand what's happening. And then let's, uh, let's give ourselves a takeaway from this book. What's going on in 2 Corinthians? Have you ever gotten your Christmas lights so tangled up? You pull them out of the box, you know, in November, right after Thanksgiving. You pull them out of the box and you're just like, nope, right in the trash. You know, I am not wasting my precious time and energy trying to untangle that. You've done that. How many of you have ever started a new hobby full of excitement? You thought this is going to be great. You spent money buying the right equipment. You got everything together. You pulled everything together. You tried that hobby. And about 15 minutes later, you're like, nope, this isn't for me. Sell it on eBay. Take it to the thrift store, right? Just it's too much effort, it's too much work, it's too hard, too of an uphill climb to do this. I used to play golf. Well, some of you really snapped to attention. I used to play golf. This has been years ago, and I really enjoyed it. I didn't know anything about it. I was kind of self-taught, which is always the best way to learn something, right? Uh, So I bought clubs at a thrift store. I didn't realize there were right-handed and left-handed clubs, so I was using left-handed clubs for a while. Uh, It's really difficult to hit a golf ball well with left-handed clubs when you're right-handed. So anyway, I'm like, this is a really hard game. Man, no wonder the pros, they know what they're doing. Figured out, okay, no, I got to get right-handed gloves. Found the cheapest right-handed clubs I could find. Had one driver, had a couple irons, and I would go out to the municipal golf course and I would just, you know, I'd, I'd have fun and, and I would hit a nice drive and I'd be like, okay, I got this. And then every other hit I would have that day would be terrible and it would ruin my day. You know what, you, you know what I mean? And I'm like, I don't want to be so upset about golf. And then I would be like, okay, whatever. I'd go home and then somebody would be like, hey, do you want to go golfing? And I'd be like, no, it just makes me so mad. And okay, I'll go. And then I, that happened three or four times. Finally, at the end of it, I was so frustrated. It had ruined my day that 
I took that one driver that I had gotten at a thrift store and I said, I don't want to ever be tempted to play golf again. And I took that driver and I bent it around a tree so that I would never be tempted. So the next time somebody called and said, hey, do you want to go play golf? I could say, nah, I can't. I don't have any equipment and I, I just wouldn't be tempted to do it. I just wanted to throw the whole thing away because it was too much effort. It was too much involvement. And who knows, I probably would have been the next great golf player, but we'll never know. But there are so many things in life that we treat that way. And I think our culture is moving more and more this direction where we want to be able to get rid of something because it's hard to clean up. It's easier to eat with disposable dishes than it is to wash dishes. We want to throw things away when they get too hard. We want that. But the problem is, is I think that some of us have brought that mentality into our relationships where something begins to get difficult and hard and ugly, it's easier just to burn the bridge and walk away and never have to worry about that again. It's easier just to get rid of it. And it can be all kinds of crazy things. It can be political differences. Can you imagine? There are people, there are family members who are estranged from one another because they have a different idea about what should matter in politics. That's insane. But they've treated those relationships as disposable or theological differences where they've said, well, I can't have anything to do with you. I will not invite you to Thanksgiving and dinner because you believe something different than I do. And it's, it seems crazy. Social dif differences, ethnic differences. They really insulted me. I was really offended. So I'm done with them. I couldn't forgive them. Or how about marriages that have just settled into a cold routine? And they're like, well, it's too late now. We're, we're in this far. We're not going to get divorced, but it's not going to get better. I mean, what are we going to do? Start liking each other? I mean, marriages that have just sort of fallen apart because nobody wanted to put in the time and effort it would take to fix them. It's so much to untangle. You just pull those lights out of the box and you're like, that seems like too much work. Throw it away. Here's a bumper sticker for you. I, I'm, I'm trademarking this because I think it's good. People are a hassle. <laughs> just put that on the back of your car and drive around. It's true, right? People are a real pain. They're a hassle. All people are. Even great people like myself, sometimes you guys find a little, you know, a little difficult. But people are a hassle. But the problem is, is the stakes are really high when it comes to relationships. In the book of John, Jesus actually prays to God that the relationship that Christians have with one another would be the way that the world knows that God loves the world. And I do wonder if people were to take a peek at our relationships, would they be like, there must be a God. He must love everyone. Or would they be like, eh, I don't know. I have a hypothesis. I'll run this by you. You can tell me what you think. I don't know. Um, my hypothesis is that most faith problems in people's life, most faith issues, struggles with God and doubt, and most of that actually start as people problems. They don't start as a difficulty with God. They start as a difficulty with another Christian. And feeling like that Christian must represent the entirety of God to the world. And if that was what God is, if that's what church is, I don't have anything to do with it. I won't ever step foot in a church again because I had a bad interaction with a Christian. I had a bad experience, and so I'm out. If you talk to people, if you dig enough, you'll almost always find that their doubt issues started with a difficult relationship. Almost always. And I think we, even as Christians now, we're still sometimes shocked that somebody at church might hurt our feelings, right? Have you ever, have you ever had your feelings hurt at church? Yeah. I, I don't know if I can tell you how many times I've had a phone conversation with somebody who says like, oh, I haven't been to church in four weeks and nobody called me. I'm really sorry, man. I, I feel bad for you. I, that's bad. I'm sad. But that itself should not be a reason to give up on God. 
Humans are a hassle, including church people. We've got to be so careful and so cautious about putting all of who God is on the failures of these imperfect people that we sit together with and sing together with. See, if I had met the Corinthian church, I would have written those folks off. I would have been like, they are bad news. Let's not have anything to do with them. It's a lost cause, Paul. Move on. But Paul does not give up on that church. He doesn't give up. I think I know why. I think I know why. When I was in high school, uh, I was a lifeguard at our school pool. I went through the American Red Cross training and all that. And for some reason, I don't know why I did this, I did all the training that they could do. So I learned how to be a lifeguard in an ocean, even though I wasn't going to do that. I learned how to, you know, teach other lifeguards. So I did all the training that you could do to be a lifeguard. So I'm American Red Cross certified 25 years ago. Yeah, I haven't kept it up. <laughs> but one of the things they taught us in the training is they said, when you're diving in the water to rescue somebody, that person, they're in panic mode. They're not thinking rationally. You're not going to swim up to them and they're not going to say, thank you, sir, for saving my life. They're flailing. They don't know what to do. They're gasping for air. And what you have to do in order to rescue them, because if you don't do this, they're going to bring you down with them and you are going to drown with them. So what you have to do is you have to incapacitate them. They showed us this move that you do. You have to incapacitate them, and then you have to do the work for both of you to get you back to safety. You have to stop them from hurting themselves and you, and then you have to dig deep and do the work to get both of you back to safety. I think that could describe the path back for a lot of relationships, you as the mature, Christian, thoughtful human may have to, for a season, do the work for both of you to restore that relationship. If you're going to put it on them, good luck. I want you to see something in 2 Corinthians. This is the last thing we're going to look at, and then we're going to wrap up. But I think 2 Corinthians is answering this question. What does the gospel look like in broken, messy, awkward, difficult, frustrating relationships? What what is my responsibility in these hard situations where we just look at that tangled mess of a human and we say, nope, (laughs) next I'll find somebody better? What is the gospel responsibility in those situations? And I want you to note, I intentionally did not include dangerous and abusive here. Because we need to talk about that, and we're going to save that for another day. Because there are dangerous and abusive situations that we need to remove ourselves from. But what does the gospel look like in these messy, awkward, difficult situations where it's going to take work? What does the gospel look like in, in cold marriages? What does the gospel look like in severed friendships? What does the gospel look like with annoying church members where after church you see them coming and you're like, honey, we got to get out of here or I'm going to get stuck. What does the gospel look like in estranged family relationships? Let's wrap up with this first. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. You're familiar with it. We read it earlier. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. We read that. And we think, yes, Jesus has rescued me. I am the new creation. That's not what Paul's saying. That's true, but that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying this is how you are to view other Christians. 
He's saying, I know they're a mess, but because of Jesus, you're to view them in this new way. That's the whole context of the section. And look at what he says as he goes on in verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the assignment of doing that in our relationships. He's not counting people's sins against them. He's committed to us this message of reconciliation to God, but also to one another. This is so important. See, here's the thing. Here's why I think Paul did not give up on the church in Corinth. Here's why. Because he knew that God had not given up on him. He knew that God had not given up on him. Paul was out here arresting, killing Christians, and God did not give up on him. Where is our line for people's behavior? According to Paul, it seems to be murder. As long as they don't murder you, you should still try reconciling with them. That seems to be Paul's line. But I think it's so fascinating because think about Jesus. This is the example. God not holding our sins against us through Christ. What did Jesus do in Messiah? difficult, awkward relationships. How far did he go? He, all the way. All the way. So here's the question. What does the gospel look like in broken, messy, awkward, difficult, frustrating relationships? They look like Jesus. That's the bottom line. I know it's so cliche. You're like, oh, of course, Patrick. It's always Jesus. Well, we are at church. We do have a cross on the wall. We do think about Jesus quite a bit. But that's the line. What would Jesus ask of me in this situation? It is messy. It is awkward. But here's the problem. If you just keep ignoring that, hoping that it'll go away, all that's going to end up happening is you're going to live in it. If you keep ignoring it because it's too hard to fix it, you're just going to end up living in it. And you're going to live in regret, and you're going to live in frustration, and you're always going to wonder, could I, should I, what would I? And, and I think if we just stop and we think, how far did Jesus go for me? Well, then that's what I want to do for them. I'm imagining, I could be wrong, um, but I'm imagining that all of you are thinking about somebody. <laughs> uh, I, know, I know I'm thinking about people in my life, and I'm thinking about people in your lives too. You know, I mean, we know each other well enough, right? Can I, I can do that for you guys. There's probably people in your lives where you need to reconcile. You need to lay out the welcome mat and try to make it happen. There's probably somebody. But I just need, I need us as a church to think about the fact that God has said, hey, I'm going to put the weight of my witness in the world on your relationships with one another. Your connections to one another. I'm going to place that weight on your friendships within church, on your love within that community, within that body. That's a big responsibility, and we've got to take it seriously.